Hello, my name is Sheila and I would like to welcome you to my podcast All About You. I love to listen to podcasts and especially conversations with famous people. However, I think everyone has a story to tell. Maybe a place you have visited, a hobby you enjoy or anything that you feel would be of interest. I want to have conversations with lots of different people and hear their stories. So if you have a story to tell, please contact me on my email allaboutyoupodcast at yahoo.com. Welcome to another conversation on the All About You podcast. Today, I'm having a conversation with the author Anne Graham. She used to be a teacher, but now we're talking about her first book called Who Cares, which is talking about supporting her son through mental illness. So Anne, welcome to the All About You podcast. Thank you. So Anne, you've just completed your first book. Yeah. And from the title, Who Cares, Supporting My Son Through Mental Illness, I should imagine this wasn't an easy book to write. It certainly wasn't. I used a lot of tissues and a lot of emotions. However, in saying that, it was therapeutic. Any mother who has a child where the child is facing a mental health issue will understand that it's never a simple journey, whether it's writing about it, talking about it, or supporting their child through this. So how old was your son when you started to go through the issues he was having? When when did that all begin? I would say that it began as a young man, probably in his mid-twenties, He had had a few, we'll say, disturbances prior to that, but I would not have attributed them to um, a mental health issue. As a child, he went to stay with his father, uh, which was a bit of a problem because it it left me feeling alone. I was a single mum. He decided he wanted to go and stay with his father, and I found it difficult to stop him because his father's life was far more attractive than mine. His father had money, his father had a car, I was quite poor and I made him clean his bedroom and go to school. So it was a, he wanted a, a more attractive world and his father was that attractive world. He, be, very quickly, he became aware that life with his father wasn't all he thought it was going to be. And he started to get into a bit of bother and he felt that people were watching him. And th- I think then there, was, there were signs that I never picked up on. He was very unhappy. And in order to get away from this situation that he found himself in, he joined the army. And he would have been about 17 or 18 when he joined the army. And he was four years there. Um, going to he went three times he went to Bosnia and he saw a lot there so when he came out of the army he would have been about 23 24 and the stories that he told me about the things that he had gone through while he was in the army relating to the army and also his social life when he was in the army made me think there's something wrong here 
there's something drastically wrong. It must have been very difficult as a mother and your husband as a parent of a son going into the forces and then being sent to Bosnia. That must have been quite traumatic for you parents. Yes, had I known what he was to face, I think I may have... Well, I'm not going to say talked him out of it because he was always the kind of boy who wanted a uniform. When he was a little boy, he wanted to go to different groups like Cubs and all the various uh, organisations that exist. But what he wanted was the uniform. If he didn't have the uniform, he wasn't going to go for more than a couple of weeks. So when he eventually joined the cadets, he seemed to flourish because, I'm going to say because he had the uniform, but clearly it was more than that. He felt as if he belonged. So when he went to the army, that was a continuation of the cadets. But unfortunately he was, well, not unfortunately, the army was this chosen career. But it's hard. It's hard, especially when they have to, the, the young men have to face trauma, terror, snipers, actually the theatre of war, which I'm not convinced that most that young men are ready for. M maybe it was, they looked on it as being a bit of a game, but in real life and seeing the horrors of war weighed heavily on his mind. So it sounds as if the uniform was really showing, I belong to this group, I belong to this tribe of people. And that's what he was longing for, maybe the belonging to something. Yes, because clearly he didn't fe feel as if he belonged to me when, well, he would be belonged to me, but he didn't feel that I was giving him everything that I could have done. Partly there is a problem there because if, if there's only one parent looking after a child, then that clearly they don't get the support of the parents. And my relationship with my ex-husband wasn't great, so there was conflict there. And as a, as a, like any other young boy, that the life his father led was attractive. And so he, he needed to belong somewhere. And I learned that when he was first in the army, it, the first night that he went there, he joined his group. And he, they, they all were sectioned off groups of six, I believe. And the, he was an extra one. For some reason, the admin had got it wrong. He was the extra one. And without much explanation, they marched them off to a barracks on his own. So the first night he was in the army, he spent that alone. He spent the night alone without being able to link or merge or socialise with all the new recruits. And he told me that he lay in his bed wondering if he'd made a mistake. But the next day everything was sorted out and uh, he, he got together with all the other young guys that were feeling, you know, so excited, I can't wait, I'm a soldier now. And in the army, I'm led to believe that they, they put the, the young men into groups like this specifically to get them to bond so that they've got each other's backs. So as you said, he, he felt as if he belonged because of the uniform, but he also, there was more of a commitment than that. They were told really, 
we are your family now, you have no other family, well not you don't have a family, but we're your family, we're here, we're the here and now, so you've got to look out for each other, so that in a way that was actually um, giving him the stability that probably he had looked for, so that when he came out of the army, he made a mistake, which is, is explained in the book, he made the mistake of not being entirely truthful with the army, they asked him where he was going to live. And he he felt by that time there was a few things had happened to create a bit of uncertainty in his mind and think that everybody was against him. And he thought if he told the truth, uh, they, they would they would put obstacles in his way. And the truth was that he was he wanted to stay in Germany. He loved Germany. I think he liked the German girls, but he liked Germany. But however, he he said to them. I'm going back home to the UK. Because he told them that, there was no support system put in place for him. If he had told the army that's where he was going to stay in Germany, they would have jumped through hoops to get him the proper paperwork, point him in the right direction. Um, and I don't know what else they would have done for him. Probably got interviews arranged for him or, or so, so some kind of social support. He never... So he was coming out of three tours of Bosnia, didn't belong anymore, and in a country where, although he knew the language, it was street language he knew, he found it difficult to complete the different forms that was needed in a, a foreign country, obviously. He depended a lot on friends. Now, that kind of support only lasts for a short while because they were all young guys trying to make their way in lives, meet a girl, have fun, try to get a job. In the army, he had my son had been a, a PTI instructor only for a short while. He learned to drive in the army and he used a gun. Well, there's not many jobs are looking for these kind of qualifications so the upshot was he got the kind of jobs that were low paid, uh, insecure. He would be the, the, the last in and the first out. There was something surrounded him, like everybody's against me. I can't get the good job. I can't earn the money. I can't get a house because I don't have a job. So partly I think his condition was exacerbated by his communication or lack of communication with the others and he ex eventually he exhausted all avenues because of his attitude because he was what we call sofa surfing and the the friends couldn't support him anymore in Germany. So what happened next he then came back to the parental home? No not not exactly he he stayed in Germany for quite a while, although he did try to come back, he decided he would come back to the UK uh, to visit and, uh, well, I suppose, try to be part of the family. But by this time, he had developed, uh, I, I would call it a post-traumatic stress. And he came back to visit now and again. It was sporadic. He became unsettled in Germany, so he left. He came back to the UK. He become he became unsettled in the UK. He left. He went back to Germany. So there was no stability. And because he had friends, 
obviously the people that he'd known in Germany and friends from school in the UK, they were happy to see him, as you would be. Oh, here's my old friend coming back. Yeah, come and join us. Have a beer. He would say, well, I have nowhere to sleep tonight. Oh, that's okay. You can sleep on my sofa. But that only lasts a certain amount of time. And something dreadful happened that he came back to Scotland and stayed with for Christmas with myself and his sister. His sister is four years older than him. And there was a disagreement about something minute, relatively unimportant. And I didn't realise that he had become very angry with me and he'd left the house. So when he left, obviously we didn't know where he was going, but he's army trained. We knew he would survive. We just didn't know where he was. Eventually we found out and he didn't want to communicate with us. He, I think he felt none of us wanted him. That wasn't the truth, but we didn't know how to deal with him. And this mental health issue that was bubbling under the surface was too difficult for him to understand. His friends were beginning to throw up their hands in horror at the things he was doing. And I didn't know how to cope. I thought he was just being awkward. And I can tell you the next bit about it. There was a jump of four years where I never saw him. And I was working and I got a telephone call to tell me that it was the foreign office on the phone and that he was in hospital in Germany. He had been shot. And I, of course, was like a, a hundred questions going round in my head. They said to me, we'll call you back tomorrow or you call us because we know that you'll be just all over the place with this. So it turned out that, as I said before, he had exhausted all the friends, he had nowhere to go, he had no food. Somehow he had managed to get a small apartment, but he was struggling. He couldn't pay the rent. And he opened, he told me this, of course, he opened his cupboard door his kitchen cupboard door and all he had was a pack of pasta he had nothing he had no family he had no security of the army he had no income he 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 didn't have a single thing that he could say was his he had no money to go out with the boys for a pint he had had a girlfriend and that had gone belly up basically because of his attitude and it turned out that he had made a gun and made a bullet and shot himself in the head. And the bullet was lodged in his skull. And now I hadn't seen him for four years. So I never told a soul about what was happening except for my boss. And I got on a flight and got, went to Germany and saw him in the hospital. And it went from there not really treatment as such, but uh, psychological treatment, but treatment to eventually remove the bullet. Apparently a female surgeon did it. Nobody wanted to touch it because it was in the in the skull, in the brain. Uh, he took a while to recover from that. And I, I went to Germany for a week and my plan was to go back and came back to Scotland. And then my plan was to return to Germany he called me and said, Mum, they're going to operate, they're going to take the bullet out. And I said, okay. 
He says, I want to tell you one thing. If anything happens to me and they put me on a machine, he said, I want you to switch it off. And that was hard to hear that because I wanted to be by his side. The whole thing is me trying to support him. And, but I did, I did. I don't know how I did it, but I guess, as I said at the start, any mother with a child will do anything to keep them alive. You've given birth to this child. Okay, he might have been an awkward wee boy at times. He may have disobeyed in the army. All, all the different things that go wrong in a young person's life. But here he was at that time, 27 years old, lying in a hospital in Germany with a bullet in his head. And from there on, that's when I really had to do the supporting to bring him back to Scotland, to put in place the services that were needed, doctors, psychiatrists, social workers, f trying to find out about accommodation for him. Now, don't get me wrong, I could have provided a lot for him, but I wasn't sure that was the answer. I felt that my role was to show him at the best that I knew of what way you can survive in this world. However, I didn't realise the depth of the mental health issue that he had. So it was difficult to write about it to answer your question. I, I, I'm speechless. <laughs> I'm absolutely speechless. Yeah. I'm laughing and it's not funny, but I, it's, it is incredible when I speak about it. It's like, was this really us that it happened to? You've been through the situation You've written pages about the situation in the book mm -hmm. and now you're telling me the story of what you have gone through. And he's gone through these issues, but as a mother, getting that phone call completely out the blue and for parents, it doesn't matter how old your children exactly. are. Exactly. It, it's just yeah. I, the way I see it, a different age, a different problem. Yeah. And maybe as they get older, the problems are more expensive. It's problems with the car, <laughs> yeah. etc. Yeah, yeah. But for a mother, having to try and do the best for him, and let's face it, as a mother, you've you've got limited resources. I mean, you can phone all these people and make. There's only so much you can do. Yeah. On the practical yeah. day to day, but when mm. it comes to actually addressing the mental issues that's when you've got to bring in the professionals. Well, that was another side to the story. Obviously, I had set everything up in Scotland. I went back to... We, we met in Brussels, actually, but the rest of that story's in, in the book. Eventually, we came back to Scotland, and he had to live in a, a hostel for a while just because of where I was living at the time and the situation. And I didn't realise, but the... The most important person for anyone who's trying to deal with somebody that's got a mental health issue, the most important person is the doctor. You get to the doctor. The doctor has the key to everything. You don't go to the bank and ask for money. You don't stand at the, the door of the house and office demanding that my child gets a flat. You, you've got to go to the key person. And I found out that the key person was the GP the local GP, and 
I actually made an appointment to go to see him before I brought my son back. I saw every single professional because I wanted them to know that I'm here. I'm here to support my son, but I'm also here to support you and what you want to do for him. I don't want him to be in a situation where he's running away from it all and, and I, I don't know what, what's he, what has he said to you? Why are you feeling like this? I want to support the professionals in their job. However, the way mental health has changed or the, the supporters for mental health has changed, the, the different mental health acts that come out allow the, the client, if you like, to be in control as well. Now, this creates a problem for some people because the client is allowed to make decisions whether or not they want to continue with appointments or if they are eventually prescribed medication, if they want to continue taking the medication. This is all about empowering the person with mental health issues. Now, there are days when somebody who has a challenge like that, they maybe feel good and they think, oh, okay, I'm, I'm okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take my medication. The next day, just as quickly as that, it could be, I don't need to take this medication. So there's a, there's a kind of yo-yo uh, situation going on. And I remember I was absolutely astounded to hear that the psychiatrist thought that my son was playing a game. He reckoned that he was reading psych psychiatry books and giving the, the correct answers. And I, I, I had to laugh at that because I've seen things that my son has written and I thought he, he would never be able to read a psychiatric book and memorise the answers. I, I know he wouldn't. So he was clearly a, a textbook case but they felt this was this was bizarre. And the psychiatrist felt he was doing the right thing by saying, I'm going to release you. I'm, I'm going to, you don't have to come back. And I thought, well, I could tell tales out of school because this boy is not right. In the car one day, he said to me, Mum, do you know that there are Germans following me? And I said, well, I, I don't know about that where would you see the Germans? Or, you know, I wanted him to tell me about it. He said, well, they listen to me anyway. They listen to me through the television. So I started to ask him to try to get more out of him. What, how do you, how do you know this? And he, he went into a complicated explanation about the pixels on the TV and the aerial on the roof. And I said, Paul, I don't understand. He says, no, you'll never understand. He said, because you could be one of them. Not a German, but you could be part of the conspiracy. So I'm in the car with him. And I said, Paul, I would never go against you. He said, but that's the thing. You wouldn't know that you were going against me. He said, and I would have to take you out. And he didn't mean for a cup of coffee. No, I can imagine he didn't. And I was really, I was afraid. I was afraid for myself and I was afraid for him. Now, he was being dismissed, psychiatrist care. And I thought... I have to make an appointment to see this man. And I did. And I know because of patient confidentiality, he couldn't tell me anything. But I said, but I'm going to tell you something. I don't think he's ready to be released. You, something, something is being missed here. 
and I said, I hold my my hands up, you're the expert, but I please, I'm going to ask you, is there any way that we could have a second opinion? And he said, well, yes, we can. And he called in a, a colleague of his from another hospital who had an appointment with my son. And I was delighted that after the appointment, this gentleman, he called me and he spoke to me for an hour on the phone and explained to me that my son had schizophrenia. And I knew, I knew he was hearing voices. And I said to the psychiatrist, he tells me he hears voices. Does he really? And he said, yes, he hears voices and he is prepared to act on them. Maybe not to harm anyone else, but certainly to harm himself. And he's already proved that by the shooting in, in Germany. So part of the reason that prompted me to put pen to paper, if you like, was because I felt that there was a lack of understanding of what people are going through when somebody in the family has a mental health issue. Not just the person, the knock-on effects that it has with parents, family, friends. Some of my friends were frightened of them. Now, I know that it wasn't the most comfortable situation to be in to be told he was going to take me out, nor was it a com comfortable position to through time find find out that he'd actually ordered a part for a gun and the police came and got him and took him away. So he got him back to treatment, he was taking his medication and he still ordered a part for a gun and he was taken away and spent a long time in Scotland's one and only state mental hospital. The thing I'm thinking about while you've been talking here, Anne, is... You come across to me as an extremely strong, capable woman. Apart from the fact you're the mother, but you are determined, you're, let's get to the bottom of this, I'm prepared to make all the phone calls, and you are absolutely right, as in the doctor is the key. Get the doctor on your side, and as you say, all these doors open. But for you, you were very, very strong. You're determined you're creative, you're standing your ground. Okay, this is what the first psychiatrist has said. I'm not happy with that decision. Let's get a second one. Thankfully, you did. If somebody or if you weren't as strong and as determined and organised as you are, this whole situation could have been very, very different. Exactly. Very, very different. Yeah. And as you say... Your son is the centre of this, but it's the family, it's the friends. Mm -hmm. They're all pulled into this, this scenario yeah. as such. Pulled in or pushed away because a lot of my family told me that they didn't want to see him, that he should be locked up, that he would take all my money and all my energy. Now, that's true. And I know that parents can't always be in a situation to support their child through... This is a very, I think this is quite a difficult situation. As you said, if their car breaks down or something, yeah, okay, that, that's a one-off. This was going to be a lifetime. This is a lifetime of support. When all this happened, because it happened over a period of a few years, I was in a very unique position 
and I was able to support him. I lived on my own. I had no other family commitments. Okay, I had my family, but I had I had no children around. I didn't have somebody breathing down my neck saying, Poh, leave him alone. Yes, people did say that to me, but I thought, I'm not going to say anything. Then, because I didn't know there might have come a time when I too was exhausted and thought, I can't do this anymore. But thankfully, he was given a choice of medication after he was taken away to the state mental hospital. And that I won't go into that just now because it's quite... It's an interesting part of what happened in, in the story, but suffice to say that he was brought back to where I lived, in, in my hometown, and he changed medication and he began to lead a full life. It was lovely to see that everything had been balanced out. I could have left, I could have walked away from that situation at the drop of a hat, and I didn't. Personally, I, I'm sure any mum would say this, I couldn't have lived with myself if I'd known my son had schizophrenia, couldn't hold down a job, was sleeping rough, homeless, maybe maybe even having turned to drink or drugs, because in the cities we see a lot of this, these homeless people, and in actual fact, they have had good jobs at one time, maybe even been in the army, I think a lot of them have been in the army and they, they don't know how to connect without that support. I'm not blaming the army in any way because eventually I helped him to get an army pension and a war pension. I was a university lecturer. He ended up having more money coming in than I did and I had studied for years. So it was lovely to see him becoming a confident young man after years of disruption and can I just say as well that because he left when he was young, I actually felt as if I had never fulfilled my role as a mother. So this was my opportunity. So when did you feel you were turning the corner? Was it a few small things started to happen? You thought, oh, this, this is looking positive? Or was there something quite major happened that you thought, okay... We are making progress now. We are going in the right direction. Yes, I think there would be times when it was it was a slow process, if you like. He could he could mix more. He made a friend. He started to go to college, but all that fell through. But that didn't matter. He was making steps there to do something for himself. I saw him. I saw him very slowly becoming confident without having to stand in a supermarket with his back against the wall, frightened in case somebody was going to come up behind him and do something. There was nobody there, but he felt there was but somebody he could. Felt there yeah. was. And I don't think it's enough to say to the person, oh, you'll be fine, you'll be fine. No, something's going on in their head. And as you said, you, there, there are things that happen. I don't think there was one particular thing. It would be a culmination of small things. I thought, oh, he's, he's walking now. Oh, he's, he's, he's going to do that himself. Oh, he's brave enough to go there. Little things like that. It's those little things that you thought, okay, maybe we are turning a corner. Yeah. And I'm sure you were very, very cautious because mm -hmm. this has happened today, but 
what's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah. You yeah. didn't know, but you started to see these small positive changes, which for you must have been incredible. Oh, it was lovely. It was lovely because it was like I had my boy back, I had the real, the real boy back. And he had a good sense of humour. I mean, despite all that happened, we could... To the psychiatrist's disappointment, sometimes we could laugh about things, which I felt was important to bring a bit of humour into it. And that's in the book as well, about the, the times when we spoke about things that had happened and, and we had a laugh. Otherwise, you would be crying the whole time. You would be really at, at your wit's end, worrying. I'm not saying I didn't worry. I can assure you, when I was out and if I heard the... The sirens. ambulance or sirens, it was like, oh, please, please don't let this be something that he's done. Please. Because in a split second, all my hard work could have been gone. Yeah. So I don't want to give anything more away about the book. Okay. But what I do want to talk to you about is the process of writing the book. Yeah. What, at what point did you think, maybe I should write about this? At the start of COVID, when we were confined to our homes, I was doing a, a, an editing job. And when I read what had been written, I thought, oh, that's, okay. that's an okay story. I, I've got quite a good story I could tell. So I put pen to paper. Never, never, ever did I intend for this story, this very personal story, to turn into a book. But when I put pen to paper and I found that it flowed and I did it in chronological order and I thought, yeah, that's okay. So I gave it to, I gave the manuscript to two of my friends to read and they did. Now they knew me obviously and they knew him and they said, wow, that's, that's interesting. We didn't realise you went through all of that because I hadn't told, I, you know, you're not going to tell everybody all the, the finer details of it so this was an opportunity for me to say right this is what happened this is what happened this is this was the next stage that was the next stage just for me just a bit of therapy because it happens to be 15 years since there was another incident but again I'll leave that for yeah anybody. we're not going to reveal anything more no about no and I thought this is actually this is doable this is doable, but I was my biggest challenge was I didn't know how my family would react. I was worried about, obviously I'm telling this story, nobody knows me, but my family, they knew most of the things that happened with him. And as I said earlier on, some people were saying to me, walk away and leave him. Just don't, don't put up with all of that. He'll take everything you've got and leave you high and dry. So I knew there was negativity there. So I wasn't sure how this would be received. And I never told anybody that I was writing a book when I finally did, decided to turn the manuscript into a book, which, you know, being from Scotland, I'm very miserable when it comes to spending money. And I had to print this out so many times so that I could edit it. And every time I looked at it, I thought, this is another cartridge of ink. I can't believe this. But it was wonderful. Be between the money that I spent on ink and paper hankies, that was it was um, it was quite funny when I think about it now, but worth worth it because I felt it was therapeutic for me and the time was right, and it was only released last week, 
And I finally told my daughter, my stepmom, my nieces, and they said, oh, we can't believe it. You're, you've written a book. So it wasn't like I'm writing a book. The book was there. And my niece said to me, how do you feel? And I said, famous. But of course I'm not famous. It was just a nice thing to say. So, Anne, you started writing this during covid yes so how long in total did it take you to write the book probably between five to six months which is is actually very quick compared with what i hear other people the length of time other people have taken but remember i was confined i was in the house and i thought and once i started it was good because as i say i didn't expect it to be anything that anybody else would read didn't expect to be sitting here today speaking to you about it, which again is very therapeutic. But I thought, let's go. Now, when when I was a teacher, I was business studies teacher. So we did uh, accounts, marketing, uh, all the different things, plus um, a lot of administration. And I had to proofread. So it was like, oh, okay. And when I've written to friends by email. Sometimes the things are a little bit funny. I make them fun and they've said, you should write a book, you should write a book. But you know, they say everybody's got a story in them. But this one I thought, yeah, let's see. Let's see. The It's for sale on Amazon, but I'm not going to make any money out of it at all. The cost is the lowest possible cost if anybody's interested in, in reading it. And um, I don't know, just <laughs> see what you think. Well, I shall make sure there is a link on the podcast to your book on Amazon. Okay. I, I really don't know what to say, Anne. I, it's very few times I'm speechless. But I think what you have gone through as a mother, and I really just think if somebody wasn't as determined as you, as organised and as well as going through the situation with your son, you had to go and deal with the negative responses from the family. Oh, leave him, stop doing it. I mean, that must, you must have felt incredibly alone yourself. Mm. You must have been felt you were a one woman crusade with a lot of your own family and people close to you saying, forget about him. I think something like that actually makes me more determined though. And I guess that's why I am where I am because life is short. You've got to do what you feel you want to do. As long as you're not harming anyone, why should I not support somebody that needs my support? And as I said earlier about the homeless people who are in the streets, there are, there are so many charities and, and groups that go out there, like the soup kitchens, uh, and all that, and and actually in the book, if anybody's interested in reading it, there is a time when my son had to go through that situation as well. So whenever I see somebody, I think that's somebody's son. Don't walk past them. That boy has a mother or had a mother. That boy has got family somewhere. And I know that in Glasgow, in Scotland, there's a big push on to help the homeless. And sadly, the homeless tend to have some mental health challenges. If somebody is strong enough to rescue their son, their daughter, their niece, their nephew, or even a friend that they know, it would save them from having to go through 
a, a, a real tragic time. Just enough to give them that little push. Not to give them everything. As I said before, I could have easily set my son up in accommodation. But I thought, no, we're going to take this a step at a time. The best I can give you is my support. And that's why the book's called Supporting My Son Through a Mental Illness. Well, so the book, the book's available on Amazon. Who cares? Supporting Your Son Through Mental Illness. Yeah. By Anne Graham. Yeah. And I feel very privileged to have sat here for probably about 45 minutes listening to this story. And I just think you are an incredible mother, an incredibly strong, determined, organised focused on what you're going to do having to make a very lot of difficult decisions on your own you are fighting your way through the the sort of legalities and the process mm. of trying to get the right help for your son mm. and can i just say thank you very much for giving me the privilege of here we're, we're both in tears we, we, let's just say we are both in tears but thank you for giving me the privilege of hearing your story. Well, thank you for listening. Right, I'm going to turn the microphone off now because I think we both need to get a Kleenex. <laughs> I hope you have enjoyed the conversation. Don't forget, if you have a story you would like to tell, please get in touch. My email address is allaboutyoupodcast at yahoo.com and thank you for listening.